Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast. I'm Adam Collins. He is Jeff Lemon. And absolutely nothing at all has been happening in the cricket world, Jeff. Nothing that I can see uh, overnight or through the week at all. No, it's been been quiet. It's been nondescript. Uh, had our feet up. Got nothing to talk about. Probably won't even do a show this week. I think there's, <laughs> there's no point. There's, why go on? It, it feels as though whenever I've, I've gone to bed the last few nights, I've woken up and uh, in, in some way, shape, or form, I uh, I, I have been um, glued to my phone. Uh, different parts of my life where things have been blowing up, but uh, no bigger uh, than Kevin Roberts losing his job. So this story was broken by Chris Barrett yesterday in the Sydney Morning Herald, and we have Chris Barrett on the show today. That decision was confirmed by a press conference. The this afternoon, Jeff, a, a meeting that you're on with the CA chairman, Earl Eddings, and Chris, in a little bit, will come and um, fill in all the gaps, how this happens, the timeline over the last week or so, what it means for Cricket Australia in the short term, and I suppose the ICC event, which was scheduled uh, later in the year, the interim appointment of Nick Hockley, of course, who has worked at CA before. He's been looking after the T20 World Cup for the last few years uh, from an organisational perspective. Uh, but Jeff, I think in, in some respects, the fact that it's been such a huge story today uh, that Roberts has lost his job, you've almost driven the news agenda on an unrelated item relating to our great friend Rob Moody. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all about where your priorities are and I thought the CEO of Cricket Australia um, getting the flick was important, no doubt, but you know, half a dozen people had already asked about that. Equally important is Rob Belinda too, the, the great cricket archivist who does such fine work on YouTube and on Twitter, who had a, a barrage of takedown notices for copyright infringement. Now, this is a, a dance that Rob does quite a bit with various boards around the world who don't seem to understand the value that he brings to the game. But, but we thought that it might have been behind us, given that everybody during lockdown who likes cricket has pretty much been kept sane mm. by Rob's work, including many of the former players who feature in it, who've been discussing it and sharing it around and all the rest of it. So R- Rob was pretty upset this morning when he'd been posting about these notices he'd been receiving and his Twitter account was suspended um, and so I thought I'd take the opportunity to ask Earl Eddings the chair of CA about it and what their position was and, and I'm pleased to say that it's one of unqualified support. Earl's a big fan of Rob's work and, and the what we're told is that it was all a mistake in communication because CA outsourced their copyright stuff to a, a legal um, group of, of sort of copyright mercenaries who operate out of India and they apparently mistakenly went after Rob, although I think if you work in this field and you don't know who Rob Moody is, that that doesn't sound entirely plausible. But um, it was withdrawn anyway. The infringement notice was withdrawn and Rob's back up and running. And more importantly, we've got on-the-record endorsement now from (laughs) CA that Rob is firmly given the green tick of approval. Rudy Edsall, who's a great friend of the show, he's been on the final word before. He just said, you're the people's journalist, Jeff. You are the person that put this on the public agenda. It is, I mean, you look at the the cricket websites at the moment and it's getting as much attention as, as the as the Robert story, which I think kind of reflects the fact that 
Rob, uh, through, you mentioned it before, but he's been a huge part of this lockdown. I mean, it would have been a massive own goal uh, had CA actually gone ahead with this. And, uh, you know, I, I guess there's a question as to whether the tail wagged the dog here, whether they would have gone ahead with it if not for the public outcry, whether they would have got away with it had this been three or six months ago instead of uh, in, in the time when we've just been out of lockdown where, where Rob's been, you know, a huge part of a lot of people's lives. Yeah, I, I don't think it was anything to do with me. I think they were moving on it anyway, so I'm not going to try to claim credit for it. But uh, there was so much pushback mm. immediately and from a lot of high-profile people, former players and so on, who were all saying, you know, make sure that this guy doesn't have to deal with it. And, and even if it was ultimately withdrawn, it's such a stressful thing. If you If you run an online operation and you put so many hours, like countless thousands of hours that Rob has put into cataloguing this over the course of 35 years and then you're told that all of that might be deleted and wiped out obviously he's still got his archive but his whole public the whole public face of his operation which is all voluntary and and all unpaid it it would be a really distressing thing to have to face this possibility that it might all be wiped out and that you don't know whether this is going to be the time that they actually follow through on that or not. So hopefully what this means is that he won't have to do it again because it's happened so many times over the last decade that Rob's been hit with these notices and, and hopefully now it will actually go away. And, and it's really good for business as well, not just in terms of the attention that he's uh, getting, but the clicks and the followers and, as you say, the, the former cricketers. And when we, late last year, Jeff, talked about the idea of Rob um, getting an Order of Australia and we were pushing it again early in lockdown. This might be the sort of thing we can now push forward. If only he were a Liberal Party MP, he'd be a dead cert mm. uh, to get himself a gong uh, next year in January. But there's no reason we can't follow this up now. Given he's now got the endorsement of Cricket Australia, um, he's in a better position than he's ever been before to be formally recognised. I, I tell you what, uh, given the, some of the honours that have been sprayed around this year, he's certainly worthy of the prize. Well, this is the only thing that makes me unsure about it is do you want to actually be part of that club? Given, <laughs> you know, there are some great people who've got them and then some absolute plonkers where it's, oh, you, you've, for, for services to rotting your travel expenses over the course of 30 years, <laughs> you know, for, for services to the helicopter industry, here's your, here's your nice gong because your parliamentary pension isn't enough. If, you've, if you're pulling a parliamentary pension, honestly, piss off and never come back. You're, you're doing perfectly well for the rest of your life without getting any little ego massages that to try to tell you that you were a good person into the bargain. Oh, absolutely no comment on that one for obvious reasons. Uh, Jeff, the, I mentioned we've got Chris Barrett coming up in a bit. We'll go into greater depth about the 20 months that, uh, that Kevin Roberts was at the helm. After the break later, we have a massive segment of Nerd Pledge. We've done a lot of work <laughs> researching some numbers this week and we've got some great stories Oof, to tell. So tell stick, stick with us uh, for later on on Nerd Pledge. Before we get to it, as I said, we'll whip through some news. And Jeff, we'll start with a significant story uh, from the Caribbean and Darren Sammy, uh, which relates directly to cricket and racism in a time when this is very much on the international agenda. Yeah, this is quite a layered story where Darren Sammy, the former West Indies captain, was posting about it online saying he'd he'd recently found out that a nickname he had when he was playing in the IPL back in 2013 and 14 was actually a, a pejorative sort of racial slur in Hindi. So he was playing at Sunrise's Hyderabad and he was routinely being called Kalu, which is a sort of Hindi word for dark. It's, it's a, a word that can be used in a lot of different contexts, but when it's used to people like that, it means somebody who's darker skinned than others. And obviously there's a huge amount of uh, loadedness in that 
sort of terminology in India where there's a lot of caste discrimination and the darkness of skin is is held to uh, to be something that means inferiority for a lot of people who are still affected by that sort of social discrimination and, and that way of thinking. So it was something that Sammy said he had been told by other players in his team at the time was actually a complimentary nickname, you know, something about being a stallion. And it turned out to have these pejorative racial overtones. And so he was really upset about this, as you would be, when he he thought that he'd had a certain relationship with people. And then it transpired that to some degree, whether they were really wanting to do that or not, they were mocking him and, and that there was a, a racial epithet sort of tone to it. So th- this is something where he's brought it up and he's had some pushback from people saying, oh, well, it was years ago and why do you care now and so on. And he's basically said, um, that there was actually a really interesting quote from him where he said, if there's one thing that I've learned, it's that every time you're talking about the right things, any time is the right time. So he's saying since, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter, but now now that he's now that he's found out about this, he wants to make sure that he talks about it more broadly. Yeah, in, in terms of that timing, he, it was this new information, wasn't it? So it's the fact that we've now been having this more detailed conversation, not just inside cricket, but in the community at large, which empowered him to now go out and make the comments that he has. And look, um, I, I, who really knows what direction this takes with cricket in the coming months? But um, it's not as though cricket's been immune from from racist activity within it. I mean, it, it's been a hotbed of it at different points through its history. But um, so there'll probably be a, a, a lot of different threads that that flow through this as, as this conversation continues to advance. Uh, yeah, over the coming weeks and months but um, yeah so w- whether this does prompt uh, further discussions around I- I've heard it described in, in ESPN Creek Info as colourism in India so it's not just about sort of d- d- direct discrimination against people of a different colour but it's of what degree of colour you are I mean I- I'm probably wording that poorly mm. Jeff but um, I- yeah I-, I wonder whether this will prompt a conversation around that as well. Well I think it is related to a lot of conversations that we've had in Australia over the last couple of decades as well where where so much of what is brushed off as um, as inoffensive is casual racism dressed up as humor or dressed up as friendliness or or the the dreaded word banter and that's the kind of way that it's being presented by some people to Darren Sammy saying well this is friendly stuff within the dressing room but he's saying that it's not friendly when it has that that implication it, it's not uh it's it's not friendly to be cruel to someone in a way that you think is a joke or that you can only get away with because you know them and, and it's certainly not friendly to deceive them about what the actual meaning is of what you're saying so uh, there's some pretty heavy stuff to answer there for for some big names not least amongst them uh vvs laxman someone we've have spoken of admiringly on the show is someone who was around that team at that time that that uh that darren sammy sent a message to him on twitter a few years ago where where sammy was calling himself that word because he thought he was still under the impression that it was a friendly name given to him by the Indian players. Mm. So uh, I think there's a, a bit more to come out about it, but whether it actually will, um, as, as is sometimes the case, particularly in India with cricket, the, the questions don't really get asked if people are worried about offending those who are being asked the questions. Another fairly heavy story, Jeff, in Afghanistan this week, their coach, Andy Moles, has uh, had his leg amputated, but kind of remarkably not only is he going to continue coaching he's going to be back on the tools like next week according to one of the reports I saw he's uh, he's going to be straight back to work after suffering a terrible infection which is yeah required his leg to be amputated 
Yeah, this, this is a, a... I mean, it's ambitious from him because when you get a prosthetic leg, you need to learn to walk on it. It's not like you just hop out of the hospital and everything is cool. So um, I, I'm not sure what the actual recovery time will be, but he, he got some sort of infection on his foot in the UAE and got one of those incredibly bacterially, like uh, re- antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections that I, I think can get into the bones and then there's basically no way to get it out. And so he was told he had to have the leg off below the knee. So whether he'll be able to to be back on the job as soon as he thinks is an interesting one. But he's he sounded very upbeat about it, but you do wonder about someone's... Uh, mental capacity at that point when you've had such a traumatic thing happen to you whether you'll be able to just just bounce back and get back to work as soon as he thinks he will and jeff before we get to the meat and potatoes of this week's show another regular segment a favorite of yours a favorite of mine it's that gym Yes, happy birthday, Sachin, where we look at whomst among us has been wished happy birthday by Sachin Tendulkar on the internet this week or this last couple of weeks. Who knows? I can't remember how often we do this segment. It comes up when I think of it. A couple of recent birthday wishes from the great SRT. One to Ajinki Rahane, who has got a nice uh, different spin on the birthday greeting where Sachin's doing that thing that, you know, that, that a politician does when they keep a note of uh, the, the names of spouses and children mm. so that they can have a personal touch. So, <laughs> um, you know, so he's dropped the name of the, of the kid in there to say, you know, I, I hope that Aria is keeping you on your toes indoors. Have a good one. Just a nice casual happy birthday from Sachin. Not going too far. Ravi Shastri last week, best wishes for the rest of your life. Jinky Rahane. Have, have a good, good one, one, mate. So the, the range this man has. <laughs> the range is incredible. Like, he's just, he's a, he's a virtuoso when it comes to this stuff. Mitch McLennigan from New Zealand. I think he plays for Mumbai Indians where Sachin's still involved so he gets one as well. If, if you're in the MI colours, you get one Kyron Pollard, uh, etc. So Mitch has got have a great day ahead. Hope to see you soon when cricket begins. And what I liked most about this, Adam, is that Sachin's got the finger gun out. Now, I haven't seen Sachin get the finger gun out before. I don't know if this is a new thing he's trying out or if it's, you know, he used to do it when he was younger but felt it was a bit too risque but he's got it out for Mitch and you know, that's that's a particular point of note. Yeah, I think so. For, for Sachin, that's quite expressive, uh, given the personality that he's mm. cultivated over the last, whatever it is, 35 years in the game. So um, Mitch must mean quite a lot to him to give him the finger guns. Um, so happy birthday, Mitch McGladigan. Uh, well, I think Sachin's starting to have a bit of fun. You know, we think of him as a fairly straight-down-the-line guy, and usually he is, but there's another anniversary in this last week. It's not a birthday, but Sachin's not limiting himself to birthdays. Any 12-month cycle, he's interested in it. So he's gone for the 12-month anniversary of Yuvraj Singh's retirement and, and popped up a photo of him with Yuvi. And, and the thing I really like about this is that Sachin's wearing a sort of wacky white fedora in this photo. Like he's, it's like he's at, in the early stages of a dress-up party and he's like, check it out, I'm wearing a hat. Wacky guy, see the hat? Um, and, and he's having a lot of fun in that photo too. So, you know, I, th- I feel we're in a more expressive age of Sachin and maybe this will only blossom further. This all started from trying to 
wonder who gets into Sachin's spreadsheet, like whose birthday mm. is sufficient to sort of make it. But what yeah. else must be in there? If, if Yuvraj Singh's retirement is getting a run, and it wasn't just, a, I mean, yeah. from memory, it was that was the last of Yuvraj's several retirements. So he'd retired from mm. international cricket, perhaps 50 over cricket, then T20 cricket, the IPL and, and so on. But um, mm. th- yeah, that, 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 that seems like quite a detailed document that he's maintaining there. Probably takes a number of his staff to, to keep it ticking over week to week. So a credit to him for um, the hard yakker he's putting in. But uh, yes, that did strike me as a fraction weird that he'd be now recognising people's retirements as well as their birthdays. I'd like to imagine it as some sort of, you know, the the Zen gardens where you go and rake the stones into particular patterns. Uh, maybe it's something like that where there are there are a bunch of jade markers or something and a big nice pool of of, of big white gravel stones and Sachin gets out there with the wooden rake and, and he has different lines for each month and and different stones that represent different people and it's a real calming exercise for him something that helps him switch off from the the hectic bustle of his day to day life. Yeah, Maybe me- that's how it works. Meditative. It's like how a lot of people get that experience out of ironing a shirt because you can't do anything but concentrate on the task at hand when you're ironing a shirt. For him, it's, it's cultivating the spreadsheet. Uh, I Jeff, wouldn't know. Uh, uh, Jeff, uh, uh, the, a couple of weeks ago you raised on the show uh, that mm. one of our World Cup episodes was languishing behind all the rest and you put the call to arms to the Final Word family and they've responded. Yeah, they have. About 500 people have gone back to listen to the World Cup Daily Day 5, which which is a lovely touch. So, you know, most of our, like, the, the, the lowest any of those episodes would do would be would be 5,000 people would listen to it. But this this one, for some reason, because we put it out late, um, it, it got, it only got about 3,000 listens. And I just feel, feel bad for it. It's just, it's the only one. It's just sitting sitting back there all on its own looking sad. So so now it's it's nearly broached 4,000. And, and it's my personal mission to get it to five. I'm going to get it at least at least with the other losers, you know, at least with the real tail end of the pack. Like, if we can get World Cup Daily Day 5, get on your feed and scroll down. What an episode too. Pakistan beat England. They made 352 from memory and then England fell 14 runs short. Maybe Joss Butler made 100. Joe yep. Root made 100. Uh, uh, Mohamed Afiz made a bunch of runs. It was a hell of a game. So I'm sure our summary of it is excellent. Yes, and, and the Chris, uh, Wake, the Chris uh, Wake's yeah, catch as well, wasn't it? was Wokes running around taking mm. it, one of the catches of, of the tournament. Maybe we'll get some support in this mission from our friends in South Africa and Pakistan. I noted this week they've both entered the iTunes charts for the first time. I'm not sure why mm-hmm. um, they hadn't been there before, but um, the final word is top of that list for cricket shows in South Africa and Pakistan. So if you're listening from those two countries, welcome uh, to the final word flock. Um, and if you're part of the flock, then, then maybe you'll end up uh, wanting to be part of our patron team as well and uh, the reason I raise that Jeff although we'll come to Nerd Pledge later is that we've been talking about having a patron only show with Paulie Shaw now this is kind of hard to explain to a new listener um, (laughs) because Uh, because uh, uh, the the England West Indies Test matches uh, are going to be played from the eighth of July in a uh, biosecure environment, which we've compared mm-hmm. to the nineteen ninety six film Biodome with Paulie Shaw and Kylie Minogue. And as a consequence, we've been sort of exploring what might be possible on our Patreon platform as far as doing a watch along, which have been sort of in fashion uh, through the, the lockdown period. Sky Cricket have been doing a number of them. They had another one this weekend uh, with the closing mm-hmm. stages of the Cardiff Test match from two. 2009, they had Jimmy Anderson uh, there to kind of narrate uh, his um, famous innings where they were able to right. bat at that draw against Australia. And in any case, so we were looking into this and what might be legal, what might be not. And it got brought to my attention that Paulie Shaw is on Cameo. Now, 
this was a world I was not familiar with, Jeff. This was a world that mm-hmm. had passed me by. I, I've since read about it in the Atlantic and learnt more about what, what Cameo is. But in its simplest terms, it is celebrities giving paid shout-outs to anyone who wants them. So, Jeff, you could mm-hmm. put yourself on Cameo and people could type in and say, Jeff, I want you to um, say happy birthday uh, to, to, to Sachin on his birthday yep. and, and we'll give you and, – and you put your price on your head. So, Jeff, you might say you're worth okay. $14 per shout-out. Uh, and Oof, um, really, but, really valuing myself. Well, we'll come to those dollar and cents amounts in a tick because there's a fascinating mm. cricket section. But Paulie Shaw, um, regrettably, isn't quite as straightforward as we hoped. I thought maybe he might come in at twenty or thirty bucks, you know, for a, for a shout out. Maybe he sit down and watch Biodome with us, but not not so. Two hundred and seven pounds to get a happy birthday or a shout out message from from Paulie Shaw, Jeff. Wow, I mean that's an investment. That's uh, that's superannuation stuff. So <laughs> you've got to be sure of the ROI on your Paulie Shaw uh, particular investment. I mean he he goes for a fairly long time. I had a look at some on his page, and they they are lengthy. So your dollars per minute are, are pretty good. And it's all about the introductory pitch because all the people on this website have a little hello message where they say it's me. Let me send you a, a video. Here's a, a little bit from Paulie Shaw. What do I say to them? Yo. What What's up? It's Polly. If you want to talk to me, I'll do a little special shout out for you. I'll say what's up to your cousin. I'll say what's up to your friends. I'll say what's up to your mama. I'll just say what's up. Anything else? Bah. What's up, Polly Shaw? That's uh, that's absolutely brilliant. I mean, again, I don't know whether we can afford it, but um, watch this space as far as uh, Biodome and, and the Patreon page is concerned. But a number of other cricketers, Jeff, have, have, uh, have put themselves uh, up for auction, if you like, and I'm, I'm, I'm as interested in the prices as much as I am the players. I mean, Alex Hartley, friend of the show, £9.96 for a shout-out from him. Alex Ross, the, um, the, the the South Australian batsman, £12.45. Carlos Brathwaite, remember the name? Well, you will for £33.20. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, you go the, all the way through here, Ben Duckett's on there, Matt Short's on there. Harry Gurney, uh, the T20 specialist, does quiz questions on there. So he, you can ask him to um, be part of your, your quizzes. He's at £24.90. Um, Carlos Brathwaite, I mentioned before. Uh, Tino Best, who does all of his with his shirt off, um, Jeff, for £12.45. Yeah, and and this this was key for me. Now, you must be looking at a UK version because I've got them all in dollars and I'm guessing they're US dollars, so that's why it's a nice uh, round right. figure. So, so that makes sense now. So Carlos is $40. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> um, Alex Hartley's $12 for some reason. Alex Ross is on there uh, for $15, the big bash cricketer with the Sydney Thunder. Um, Brad Hogg, 75 bucks, really feeling himself. Brad Hogg saying, you know, you're not going to get my... Tabitha Hoglet impression for any less than $75. (laughs) Um, Keen listeners. But yeah, I've gone through all of Tino's and he definitely has a rule that he cannot be wearing a shirt in any of his videos. So I think that is what gets him the nod from me for the Seabus Super Performer of the Week. Although you've got another nomination. My my nomination was was Peter Graves. So I must admit, I don't know much about Peter Graves, but evidently he played 16 years of county cricket uh, for Sussex in the 60s and 70s. He's, He's listed at 
eight pounds thirty, so he's not overly picky, but he identifies as a cricket legend on here, and he's the one standout of, of the older generation. But um, I did like that, that Peter has badged himself that way, and his intro video is an absolute classic. Clearly, he's got a friend of his to video him, and they've, they've kept the bit on the front where um, he's like, oh, "Have I got? Is the camera on? Am I, am I recording? Am I recording?" Is all that gibber <laughs> at the front? So um, maybe yeah. the, the former the Sussex left-hander uh, might be my C bus pick. Well, he's a uh, he's a nice clean ten bucks, Peter Graves. He's not messing about, nothing fancy with, with the amounts. Ten bucks will get you Peter Graves. <laughs> and I like the fact that he's the only one of an older generation who's on there. Everybody else has obviously been got on by somebody else. Carlos, I like that he said all of all of the money that he makes goes to his charity off, off that. So that's a nice touch from, from Carlos who's isn't he just sweet? He's just such a nice He's just such a nice fellow. I kind of like, feel sorry for those who, who haven't received any bites either. So Amanda Jade Wellington, who's a favourite of ours on The Final Word, Jeff, we love Wello. We've we followed her story very closely since um, the first season of the Big Bash in 2015-2016, uh, turning the ball square and on TV and, and so on and getting a chance to play for Australia along the way. But um, uh, she, she's yet to get a bite. And her intro video, and, and again, we, we're huge fans of Wello, but it's not the most compelling. Um, but uh, yeah. so, so she's on there without a bite so maybe you, you might want to go on there this week and and give us some love yeah, yeah or maybe you should, i mean you could send one to me you know for my birthday's in a few months um, <laughs> <laughs> it's the present that you know i want but but i think for being the generation breaker peter graves really should be the cbus super performer of the week because this is particularly relevant cbus provides advice and products which allow members to convert retirement savings into a regular and flexible income in retirement. And what is more regular and flexible as an income in retirement than the money you make from your Cameo page where you sell birthday wishes to those who want them. Uh, you can go to cbussuper.com.au to check out their superannuation offerings. Uh, you can get a PDS and you can remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Beautifully done as always, Jeff. After a break, we'll be back with Chris Barrett from the City Morning Herald talking about the removal of Kevin Roberts. On our way to Chris Barrett, let's mention our friends at The Pinch Hitter. And I say our friends at The Pinch Hitter because Adam basically is one. He makes the Calling the Shots podcast, which is part of the offering of this strange new multidimensional digital publication that has been set up to help freelancers eat when there's no live sport to talk about. Uh, there's been a lot going on on The Pinch Hitter. It's, a, it's an online publication, digital publication. So there's writing, there's photography, there's audio in the Calling the Shots stuff. That, that Adam has put countless hours into over the last few weeks every time I've spoken to him or Dan Norcross. They've, they're haggard, they've grown beards, um, they've shaved them off again, they've grown them again. They're spending, like, they're up in the middle of the night listening to clips of me doing commentary from 2013 or something to, to try to find nuggets of gold. So, you know, God forgive them. But look, there's a lot going on, Adam. Fill us in. Yeah, that is true. I, I was up from from 1am till 3am on Saturday night. I was listening back to two hours of the Raw Radio from 2013, which, Jeff, you were helming. That was your first broadcast, cricket broadcasting project. <laughs> Trying to find just the right grabs that we might be able to use in the, in the next episode, which is about the disruptors, um, which comes out 
on Friday. But the broader pinch hitter project has been yeah, a wonderful thing, really. Uh, it's required a number of people taking pay cuts, a number of people um, chipping in money through the PayPal page uh, that they've got set up on the nightwatchman.net where the magazine's available to fund it to make sure that cricket writers could keep working through lockdown. And it's been a great success. So many people have contributed uh, pieces of writing, um, talking to the editorial team there. So many different types of voices that they haven't necessarily had uh, over the years have been, been pitching up and wanting to be part of it, which has been absolutely magnificent. It's on a pay-as-you-can-afford basis. So um, the recommended price is, uh, you know, you chip in a few quid per edition, but that's uh, at your discretion. So there's a, a link on uh, thenightwatchman.net when you pick up the mag to, to pay for it if you wish. But if you just want to have a look, um, that's perfectly fine as well. Um, all the money uh, that's contributed goes back into funding great cricket writing. So there's a good incentive there. And Jeff, edition seven, as I mentioned before, is out this Friday? It's out and there are a lot of things I'm interested to read in it, but most particularly uh, Scotland's famous win over England recalled by those who played in it. I was watching the highlights back of this the other night and getting goosebumps all over again, just watching that those last few deliveries as Scotland uh, defended their total and got the last couple of wickets and, and what a what a triumphant moment it was what what a moment of ecstasy it was for them so really interested to, to hear about the recollection of those who were there on that day at the Grange it was a great day for world cricket that one uh, to start the day in the women's Asia Cup Bangladesh knocked off India in the final and then in the afternoon Scotland of course beat England and I think that was the only series England lost in one day as for like four years leading up to the World Cup or you know a long period of time as they went to number one even though it was a one-off it was still constituted a series in the absence of any further games so it does they reinforce kept pushing it out they kept saying well it wasn't a series because it was one game <laughs> so the statos would be would just be nudging it aside as though as though that didn't happen yeah so that's all in there they're chatting to one of our faves Jason Gillespie as well uh, Tanya Aldred is meeting Jack Russell online, which is a lovely kind of sentence that I didn't predict saying. Uh, Michael Holdings' year at Rishton Cricket Club by Scott Oliver, who loves to get into the real nitty-gritty of some, you know, below county level, some... some, some is that minor counties? Is that is that local leagues? I don't even I, know. I'm not sure, but Scott's written a number of these pieces over the years. Scott played cricket at a pretty high level uh, and has gone away and, and, and documented the seasons of s- serious pros that have gone and played club cricket, and Michael Holdings one of them. Uh, Ali Mitchell uh, has, has written about how Guernsey managed to get their, their season off the ground recently. So we've had a couple of instances where uh, Associate Nations, Vanuatu being one and now Guernsey and other have found a way to get on the field during COVID and um, generate tons of activity on, on YouTube. So Ali Mitchell's gone and worked out how they managed to do that a couple of weeks ago. And again, it's all in, in the show notes for us today at nightwatchman.net. You click the link there, you get taken straight to the page and um, the, the Calling the Shots podcast with Daniel and myself. If you listen to the Mark Nicholas interviews last week and thanks for the wonderful response to those. They were both part of Calling the Shots. Jeff's on there this week telling a wonderful story as is Jared Kimber, a couple of other fantastic guests who we've got um, who, who, yeah, there's a a really interesting sort of 10-year period between 2009 and 2019 where broadcasting really changed and there was um, the room opened up for a bunch of alternative voices and uh, it's a story that we're looking forward to bringing to you this Friday and it's all through the pinch hitter. So jump on your Google machine, put the pinch hitter in, I'm sure you'll find it, or you can go to nightwatchman.net. You can chip in easily there with PayPal if you want to try to keep this interesting new enterprise afloat. We're glad that they're up there and we're glad that we can help a little bit if we can. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw and you're listening to The Final Word Podcast.
It's the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and we're really pleased to have with us uh, Sydney Morning Herald newshound, newsbreaker, front and back of the paper today, saying that Kevin Roberts will be losing his job, which was confirmed today. Chris Barrett, hello. G'day, guys. Yeah, that was quite a relief when it's confirmed, isn't it? Um, very nice to be with you, long time listener and all that. Um, uh, big, big fan <laughs> of the show. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's great to see you guys and uh, great to talk to you. Uh, Chris, uh, I remember when you had a, a big story a few years ago, it would be five years ago now actually, wasn't it, when Shane Watson was left out of the um, the, the team at Lords uh, for that Ashes Test match that um, you were on tenterhooks for a good 24 hours until the team was formally announced at... I don't think they announced it at the toss. You might have. I think you had the story two days out, and they might have confirmed Watson being dropped the day before. Whatever it was, um, I've seen you stress out uh, between the time you hit publish and when the, when the news is confirmed. How was your last day, having put on the front page of the, the, the you know the City Morning Herald that, that Kevin Roberts was going to lose his job? No, this one was very different. Yeah, you're very right that. Uh I remember that occasion well, actually, too. You, you, you're very sure about a, a decision when it comes to who might be sort of in and out of a, of a side. And obviously, Watson, at the time, um, that was that was reasonably big news. I mean, he didn't play again, did he, uh, after Cardiff? Uh, and the longer it goes, the more concerned you get. And remember, remember there was a there was a funny buggers press conference with Michael Clark um, that afternoon where he where he you know, he claimed he had spies in his bedroom or what have you, and um, and denied all knowledge, and that's just, uh, and that just gets you going as well. I remember, I remember Dean Wilson from the Mirror came up to me and said, uh, you know, what are you going to do if it's wrong? And I said, oh, I'll just, just move on, mate. <laughs> you know, and he, uh, I, I was still, I was still pretty confident in the story, to be fair. But it, until, until the day before the game, when, um, when Shane Watson wasn't warming up, that's when you feel a little bit better. But, it, but anyhow, this, this situation. Um, it was very different. This was this has been in train for for a couple of days. The, the murmurings are around on on Sunday. Uh, Peter Law from the Australian was was picking them up as well. Um, we're both putting in a Sunday shift, and and things have moved pretty quickly. And, and look, to be honest, by yesterday afternoon, uh, look, the, the the word was was certainly around that uh, the dogs are barking and that that uh, he, he would probably uh, be leaving the organisation within the next couple of days. It's a strange one, Chris, because you know Adam and I spoke about it only a few weeks ago, and we speculated, but said it would be very unlikely to happen. We thought, given that you know he's only halfway through a, a first term in the job, it's a three-year term, he's eighteen months in. It it just didn't seem likely that that a change at, at that position would actually do anything. What has gone wrong to force him to make that change, and and why has it come about now? Look, I didn't see it coming particularly quickly either for the for one of the reasons you just said, you know, the amount that they have had to pay him out, which doesn't seem to align with a, a so-called financial crisis, which which they're overseeing, and and that still doesn't really, you know, meet up those those two outcomes. I think what's changed is just the board have just have just realised that they are in a, an ugly stalemate with just about every stakeholder in, in Australian cricket, and. At the moment, there doesn't seem to be a path out of it. And if this is a circuit breaker of any sort, simply because Roberts is such an unpopular character uh, almost universally throughout the game, then then perhaps that's just a, a yeah, as I said, a lever that can that, that can allow them to move forward slightly. Um, I don't, I'm not sure it necessarily will. My discussions this afternoon certainly suggest that it, that it won't be the panacea for for all the ills in Australian cricket at the moment, and that. 
you, you know, pe- people in in state land and 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 at the Australian Cricketers Association, you know, don't believe that it's necessarily um, solves all, all the problems they've got. So the, the chairman um, Earl Eddings, you know, he's done a, he did a Zoom call today, which you're on, Jeff, uh, asking about Rob Moody. That was that was good to put him on the on the spot there. Um, you know, he hasn't given any impression that they're going to walk back any of those cuts. Uh, of course, they might re, uh, revisit them if things improve in terms of the forecast and the outlook for the summer. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure how much it's going to achieve in the immediate future. I'm sure they, their, out, their goal is, is certainly to, to get a bit of clear air, though. A couple of months ago when we first started talking about this, I suppose it would have been when the staff cuts came in from CA, or should I say when they put them on 20% pay until the end of the financial year. Um, the uh, backstory with Roberts was hard to avoid, hard to miss what happened in 2017 before he was Chief Executive Officer, but around the MOU stoush. To what extent do you think that's informed the bad blood that I suppose I haven't been able to get through in this saga because really when he took over it was such a low ebb that it was almost only upside really. I mean you can frame it that he stewarded them through um, a tough period and he did but Australian cricket was stuffed at that point as far as public perception was concerned. There was only one way to go when it was up. This is the next major friction point. Um, so those those relationships from 2017 which were so damaged do you think that was the, the main catalyst for all of this? Look I think, I think the fact that he doesn't have strong relationships with with those key, I hate using the word stakeholder, but I'm going to use it just because it's catch-all. But, but with, with, with those groups that are prominent in Australian cricket and, and that you need to have some sort of alignment with, that's clearly a, clearly a factor. And he's never really recovered them. I mean, he's attempted in an awkward sort of way to become a player's man, you know, like calling the players to, to actually let them know about about their, their cost-saving measures that were coming um, and, and the fact that, you know, to CA's estimation, they were, they were going to be quickly running out of, out of money. Um, that was that was a couple of months back. And he's, uh, you know, he was, uh, he rang Steve Smith and David Warner regularly, he said, during the, during their um, time out of the game. So he did work on trying to improve those relationships. You've got, you've got to give him that. Um, but I think it was so toxic what happened in 2017 that, um, that I, he's always going to struggle to recover recover from that. I must say, though, during during this period, one of the other problems with it is that he hasn't been able to actually engage at all the time in the top level of discussion simply because uh, of the, that friction that, that already exists there. So that, that's a, a lingering issue for him. It always has been. But as I said earlier, I think the, the tension and um, the immovability in this that has existed is 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 not just limited to Roberts. Um, you know, I hope that I think CA and the board hopefully, as I said, they can they can try and um, you know get some some semblance of peace or, or path forward with with those partners in the game um, with him out of the picture. But I, I don't think it's the last part of the story. The thing that struck me about what was going on in the last couple of months that was so strange was how much it seemed to be a direct repeat of the same mistakes of 2017. And if people don't know what we're talking about there, that's the pay dispute where the the new 
players' uh, pay contracts for the next five or six years were were up for renewal and there was argument about what form they should take. Now, Roberts was in charge of that process and he said, um, he, he gave the impression of there being a great financial urgency, like a big financial crisis that if the players got a percentage of the revenue like they used to get, then the game would be ruined, it would go broke, the grassroots of cricket would be ruined and everyone would run out of money and then refused to budge from that position and eventually had to be moved. And one of the big obstacle points was that uh, that the players' union couldn't get the information out of CA that they wanted. They couldn't get accurate financial forecasts. They couldn't get the details. They'd always get overviews of things rather than the details on the finances. And then this sounds like exactly the same thing that's happened this time around, where the state associations and the players' union have been asked to take cuts. All of the staff have been laid off on 20% pay. And then nobody's been given actual accurate information. They're all given overviews of, we think we're going to lose lose X hundred million dollars, but it's never explained why. They don't get the actual info behind it. And it just struck me as as bizarre that you would go through a process in almost exactly the same way, hearing the same frustrations from all of those groups saying, we need more information, we need clarity, we need communication, and not giving it to them. Yeah, you wouldn't be the only one who says that. I mean, I think transparency or the, or the you know, the absence of it or sort of, a, you know, not enough of it is, has been one of the biggest gripes from from the states and the, and the players' association during this period, you know whether they, you know, I've heard tales about them just getting a, you know, a little pamphlet or, or what have you, you know, just with dot points or, or, or you know, just the, just the main the main things they want to cover. I think when they delivered that, um, and this is this is getting into too much detail, but the, um, ironically, uh, when, when when they delivered that uh, the, the reforecasting. Um, of, of revenue last week, which was very controversial. It came down, they're saying that, you know, revenue might come down by 200 million or more this summer, which is going to affect everyone. That was just in a, just in an email rather than, apparently, rather than in, you know, with, with, with multiple attachments and, um, uh, you know, uh, et cetera, to, to explain uh, exactly how they'd, they'd come to that conclusion. So that's, that's also, you know, generated... Um, you know, dissatisfaction, and I, it, it, it feeds right back into that mistrust that you know um, was generated uh, in, in 2017, which which you talked about, Jeff. I mean, I, I think what you'll find, and and I've I've filed a story on this tonight, and I noticed Dan Bredig has filed a, something along the similar lines. Um, and Daniel, to his credit, has written about this before. Is that is you'll find that I think that the states, or, or at least some of them, will push for. For the way that the board is governed to be to effectively be revamped to to, to return to them having uh, state representation um, on on the on the cricket Australia board not not the old days of the of the you know the fourteen member sort of three for New South Wales one for Tassie sort of setup but um, you know one seat on the board each because they believe that the that transparency is be, is is one of those issues but they also believe that you know the connection between CA and its and its outposts is you know is deteriorated in time. You mentioned the board. Uh, Earl Eddings, who's chairman of it, was asked a couple of questions today about the staff cuts and 
the degree to which uh, the board take responsibility for that. He, in fact, he was quite strident that he did take responsibility for, for the staff cuts. Uh, I, I thought that was quite. I thought that was quite laudable too, actually. Yeah, I mean, you know, given the, uh, yeah, yeah, well, given yeah. it's been such a talking point, such a focal point rather of this that the staff cuts were. Um, were, were, were a misstep at the time and, and that the, the worst case scenario that was budgeted for then didn't end up, didn't end up playing out as Jeff alluded to in his question before but um, the border on the front foot saying they take responsibility but um, but Roberts has got to go it, it does kind of reinforce that this is as much of anything about personality as it is about policy that is yeah I think you're right I mean I, I, look I say it was laudable because there was an expectation potentially that they were going to distance themselves somehow from from what Roberts um, or what Roberts's organization had had tried to execute in the last couple of months so you know it was refreshing at least that that CA and, and, and the chairman have owned up to say no it's you know he's been following our instructions essentially back to your other point I mean you, you you're clearly right I mean he, he he's one of his main um, admissions uh, in in that press conference today with it was that communication was was the thing that's really let them down, and, and you know he's he's effectively putting that uh, very heavily on Roberts. Uh, he, he wouldn't get it, get into the relationships problems that Roberts has had uh, within the game too much, but I mean he was pretty clear in saying that you know we we hope we can this is a move that can help bring cricket together, and, and the change of leadership uh, is a vehicle towards that. I mean he was pretty clear on that point. Chris, you were watching that press conference as well. I'd be interested in your impressions on it. You're talking about um, Earl Eddings admitting that communication was a failure. You're talking about transparency being a problem. And then when he's asked about the most literal basic part of all this, the chairman can't give a straight answer. People say, why are you getting rid of your CEO? And he says, Kevin Roberts has done a wonderful job. That was his quote. He's uh, he's stewarded CA through a difficult period with COVID. He hasn't lost the trust of the board. He hasn't lost the trust of the staff who he's sacked most of. Um, they won't tell you whether, whether they'll pay him out or how much they'll pay him out during a supposed financial crisis and that the board take responsibility for the decisions that were made. They tell you all of these things. They can't say one bad thing about Kevin Roberts. They can't say one thing he's done wrong. They gave a long list of all the great things he's supposedly done for the game and then said, also, he's got to go. Like, it's just bullshit. Why can't they give a straight answer about why somebody has to leave their job? Yeah, there's a few missing pieces in there for sure. And look, I I thought the same thing and was doing my best, you know, when you get a question in... um, on a quick side note, as you see, that Zoom press conference was a, was a capacity crowd, as more than the NRL had in at their games at the weekend, which was <laughs> which is interesting. But um, uh, of of a hundred people, but yeah, look, I can only think, Jeff, that it's because they have reached a financial settlement of such confidentiality that and of such weight that it includes both sides not shit canning each other publicly. Um, about the happenings of, of what's gone on in the last two months. I mean, imagine if Roberts, he's been not made to look great in the last couple of days uh, and cast out, if you, if, you, if you listen to some people. Um, imagine if he wasn't compensated to the extent um, that he was happy to stay quiet. I mean, I'm sure he'd have a, a couple of tales to tell about how he was just following the board's instructions. Admittedly, that's admittedly Earl, 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 Earl Eddings actually concedes that anyhow. But yeah, look, it, it wasn't ideal to be able to, to to front a media conference like that and not be able to say squarely what was the trigger point. When did you start deciding that you had to make a change? Um, exactly 
why was he not the right man to lead Australian cricket? Um, it would have been nice to hear those things, uh, particularly when he was, yes, yeah, so, yeah, so, um, so praise, you know, praising of, of Roberts, I suppose, you know, about the, about the wonderful job he'd done earlier. I think he'd actually possibly mistakenly said during there too that he was a great communicator, which didn't really match up. Yeah, with, he did. With, that, with that some definitely of the other stuff that he'd said during the um, press. Yeah. They've worked hand in glove with Kevin. He said he's done a wonderful job, and you think, well, he sounds like a great candidate for the job. You're looking for a new CEO. You're talking. Yeah, about maybe this you bloke. can put his name in. <laughs> or maybe Kevin's keeping the worldwide search. Well, I was going to say that was my next question, actually, Chris. Um, I mean, the worldwide search. We know last time when CA went through this, when James Sutherland. Um, it came to the end of his long tenure there, 17 years, that um, they, they talked about a global search and they ended up going next door um, to Kevin Roberts, who was uh, the chief operating officer at the time. Um, is your impression that this is how it will be, your early impression, that it'll be truly that, it'll be a global search, or, or will like Ben Armafio become the chief executive in a couple of months or go to Arden Street and pick, pluck him from North Melbourne because he's one of the boys? Like, What do, what do you think? I mean, what, you know, is this really a thing or is this, a, or is this, the, is this window dressing? I think you'd put a line through a mafia, but um, uh, look, I think they'll have a good look around. I mean, I, I think, I think, unfortunately, it's safe to say, and unfortunately for for people who might maybe very good candidates like Belinda Clark, you would think now that they'd be reluctant to just sort of go knocking down the hallway at CA and see, you know, who'd like the job down there. So, what I mean to say, you know, internal candidates, whether they're going to be harmed by what's happened uh, with the Roberts experience, I don't know. I think John Warne's going to be right in the mix. I mean, you'll remember he was the New South Wales chairman who was in the top two last time, um, was was pipped at the post, and you know, according to perception, it was a it was it was uh, David Peaver and uh, who, who got him over the line. And uh, I don't know if that's the case. To be honest, I've, I've heard different versions, but I but I know that. Um, you know, it certainly came at a at a tricky time, and, a, and just before the landing of that cultural review in 2018, which cost Peter then his job. So, it, it'll be interesting to see what they do. I mean, you would certainly think uh, two years later or 20 months later, that decision then doesn't stack up particularly well now, and plenty of people were arguing that was the case then. There'll be other there'll be other sort of prominent people in for the role. You know, you, guys like David Gallup. Um, who's headed football and, and the NRL? He's he's not in a full time job. I mean Todd Greenberg, who's just been uh, moved on or, or resigned as it was as NRL uh, chief executive a couple of months ago. You know he, both of them played first grade cricket in Sydney, incidentally. So they've got they've got that link to the game. And then Greenberg actually uh, started his career as I think as a development officer at Cricket New South Wales. So you know you can expect candidates like that. I think potentially I think you can expect you to. Christina Matthews, possibly. Um, I haven't spoken to her about her, whether she would put her hand in again. She, she was in the mix last time and she made the top five. Uh, she's the Wacker CEO. Um, and then, there's, you know, the, I suppose there's international guys. I mean, with, I don't know whether a guy like Jeff Allardyce, who's very senior at the ICC and well-known to people in Australian cricket, would be would be interested. But you, you would think they're, they're going to. They're certainly the impression is they, you know, they're going to look far and wide. And unlike last time, they might actually say, well, look outside cricket. Remember last time they sort of ended up concluding we had to have a cricket person. I'm not sure that has to necessarily be the case. I think when you look at the Pat Howard situation where he was smashed day in, day out for years for not being a cricket person rather than for any of the things that you could have smashed him for instead. You know, in some ways, 
you do have to be a cricket person just to take that particular first sledge out of the way. But, I mean, surely they're not going to be shopping around the, the washed-up former CEOs of other sports where it's like being at the, the bottom of the championship where every shitbox club just sacks their manager who then gets picked up by the next shitbox club and, you know, you just, you've got about the same six managers who've coached 43 different clubs in English football. Like, you know, surely you're not going to go, oh, David Gallup, hop in, Todd Greenberg, hop in. Like, come on, you've got to have some self-respect, don't you? They might get Sam Allardyce to come in instead of Jeff Allardyce. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that those sort of characters and, and candidates, you know, ha, they haven't gone for in the past. They, they, cricket's always wanted to get a cricket person. Uh, and look, you're probably right. They'll probably go down that path again. I don't, I don't know if there's other international um, candidates that, that might appeal. I, I haven't actually cast a lot of thought to that yet. Um, I think it'll probably take a few months. I mean, Nick... Paul Paul Marsh was an interesting suggestion. He's someone who's... Because because he's been prominent with the players' union in the past, he might help bridge that divide between the the organisation and, and the players' association. Yeah, his name's been been bandied about, and you know that, that was a. In fact, it was bandied about um, when people were talking about interims. But I mean, the problem is with an interim, you, you've got to chuck your job in to, to to take take one for three months without a guarantee of the full time job. So, I suppose in that sense, Nick Hockley, um, who's taken the interim job um, because he won't have much to do organising a World Cup that's not going to happen uh, <laughs> is is a decent choice uh, and look I think like anything um, he may well potentially emerge as a, as, a, as a candidate as well I don't know he certainly looks he looks at the moment like 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 he might be an interim but um, he, he may fancy the job uh, he, he did a good job of the Women's World Cup um, he's he's obviously got a been been running the men's World Cup as well, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. I think I think that it'll it'll, it'll take a it'll take a few months, and um, th- there should be someone in place before the summer. A decent CV from Hockley as well, given what he did with the London Olympics in 2012 as well, and you know what he did with the Women's World Cup and and also the 2015 Men's World Cup. So you know it, it makes a lot of sense that he's the interim, given that it seems very unlikely that the World Cup's going to go ahead this October. And Earl was asked that, wasn't he, uh, about this year's World Cup, and he just reiterated that point, wasn't it, that that uh, they have a, a better model than this year. Um, obviously, it's not been ruled out yet by the ICC. We learnt when they had their meeting uh, last week they've, they've kicked that decision down the can to July, but. Um, um, it, it certainly feels as though CA are framing this like, look, don't do it this year. They're, they're public. They're, they've gone from sending private letters or you know um, sitting around a board table saying this to publicly flagging, do not send the World Cup here this year. He was pretty emphatic on it, wasn't he? Actually, I, I thought that was yeah. possibly the most emphatic thing he said today, and certainly, certainly, certainly uh, the strongest indication we've heard publicly yet that there won't be a World Cup this year. I think we probably all know it anyway, but. Um, just getting 15 teams into the country is just going to be too difficult. Um, so that, you know, whether it goes back to next year or, or, or even further beyond, um, I'm not sure yet. But uh, that'll, you know, that'll cost CA a little bit. I mean, I think they've projected 20 million bucks that that will cost them. But I think that's quite small compared to what they stand to gain if they can get the rest of the summer out of the way uh, with potentially, I think, crowds that might even be close to capacity. I mean, it's, it's a bit diff- difficult to tip at the moment, but there's going to be crowds of, say, close to 10,000 at football games, um, certainly at the NRL in, in Sydney from, from July 1. So you'd have to think, if things continue to improve, um, you know, that the outlook's looking quite bright there. 
Uh, last one from me, uh, Chris, it goes to legacy really. I mean, on Jared Waitley's show today, he talked about the fact that it's just 100 days ago, exactly 100 days since the Women's World Cup final at the MCG, 87,000 people there, you know, incredible result for Cricket Australia and, and the Australian women's team and Robert's involvement in that. So I guess that's a, a major legacy item for him, that tournament. But other than that, um, looking across the 20 months that he was in charge, um, how do you mark his card? How do you think history, more to the point, will mark his card, um, given he took over with, uh, you know, Australian cricket in disarray. It's not in disarray at the moment as far as the, the performance of the teams are concerned, but um, we're obviously in the middle of this crisis. How do you think um, he'll be looked at maybe 10 or 15 years into the future? Probably not particularly kindly. Uh, I mean, you know, he's followed a guy in who, for all his faults, you know, was just an absolute mainstay of Australian sport, James Sutherland, who did nearly 18 years, you know. Um, so, look, the, te- the team has done very well. Um during during his tenure, there's there's no argument about that, um, and I think Roberts and his and his regime certainly deserve a little bit of credit for uh, for the environment they've created and 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 in under which you know Justin Langer and Tim Payne have have have, have restored the reputation of that side and and, and players like Steve Smith etc have done so brilliantly on the field, but ultimately, I mean he's. Um, he, he's arrived with a, with a question mark and, and, and left with a, and left with a bigger one, hasn't he? So um, I don't think uh, you know he'll be going down as uh, one of the greats of Australian sports administration. Chris Barrett, massive day for you, massive day for Australian cricket. Uh, congratulations on breaking the initial story, and um, thanks for joining the final word. Enjoy uh, a quiet night tonight. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm Barney Douglas, director of The Edge. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. What a show. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Chris Barrett for making time in what was a particularly busy week for him. And Jeff, with all that out of the way, we've got plenty of time for... Nerd Pledge! The game of nerds and pledges that we play with people on our patron page where they support the show by sending us a number of dollars and cents where the number relates to cricket. And we have to crack the case. We have to figure out what it is. I I just had a flash to the office where it's like how, how many cases have you cracked how many, how many you don't you don't crack a case that's pejorative you solve a case <laughs> um, right we, this is what we do though we crack them we solve them uh, unless people don't set us a number people like Haley Fuller uh, in which case we just say their names and make them feel venerated and loved uh, Haley Fuller particularly because that's a great name to have in cricket where it's like could you just bowl a bit Haley Fuller uh, just why don't they pitch it up Adam why don't they pitch it up <laughs> I feel like this is every session of ever watching professional cricket is someone saying they should just pitch it up more and our other Julio is Dave McRobbie so we've got the nerds we've got the Julios of course in keeping with the spirit of the Australian team from the 90s. Uh, McRobbie, um, I'm just thinking of Margot Robbie and thinking about the relentless way that Shane Warne's been pitching up to her on Instagram recently. I mean, you've got to be in it to win it, I suppose, um, from, from Shane's perspective. He's never been shy about these things. But thank you to Dave McRobbie and the Hayley Fuller, our Julios this week. Yeah, um, Shane Warne obviously didn't realise that her middle name is Away, Margot Away, Robbie, <laughs> um, because that's what she would like him to do. The first 
of the nerd numbers on our list, with thanks to Haley and Dave for also supporting the show, is Geisy K. Now, Geisy K, I've seen pop up on Twitter plenty of times, mm. where we go way back with with the great Geisy K. But this number, well, firstly, a very generous number with eleven dollars and seven cents. Now, eleven oh seven one one oh seven. I was looking at that and had an immediate top of the head tingling moment because it, it can only be the highest ever first class score that was made by Victoria in 1926. I didn't remember off the top of my head that it was in 1926, but I did remember that it was a score. Um, 1,107 was made against New South Wales in a timeless match, a timeless Sheffield Shield match that still only took four days. And I was then went and found the scorecard for this and was looking it up, and I knew, Adam, you would be delighted by this because this is a match where they played on Christmas Eve, then they had two days off for Christmas Day and Boxing Day, and then they played three more days thereafter to finish it. Off. Yeah, this was quite common in Shield cricket, what they would do around Christmas. So the, the first ever broadcast game on television was a, a Sheffield Shield game in 1956 with the same pattern. They played before Christmas, a couple of days off, then, then back into it. But this in, in 1926, wasn't it? 1926-27. I mean, it's not as though the New South Wales side's a weak one. I mean, Alan Kipax is, is leading them. Archie Jackson's coming in there at number six. So, you know, they're, they're no... Um, no, no chumps, but they're bowled out for 221 uh, early doors. And then Victoria, as you say, pile on 11.07. And, and the scorecard, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. The first four players all making tons. But, I mean, Jeff, go through it because it, it really is something. It's a work of art. <laughs> okay. So I was particularly interested in the – so they're eight ball overs. So they get 322 overs of eight balls in, which, which would be 429 if they were six balls. So it's almost a five-day test that they get into the four days. But the scoring rate for Victoria – when they make they make 573 on their first day of batting and then another 500 and change on their second day they're going at nearly six and over in these eight ball overs so they're going at you know four and a half in in six ball over terms so they're flying along for for the rate at the time where you know the, the new south wales team is going at about two and over and they're going at six and over which is extraordinary in itself and the thing that i really like on this scorecard is the number 5 and the number 6 for victoria they make scores of six and seven. So if you've got those two out of the top four, you think, well, the others probably won't make a thousand between them, will they? But they did. Um, and they were doing it against Arthur Maley as well, who yeah. could bowl. So, so the opening partnership is 375. It's none for 375 when Bill Woodfull gets out for 130-odd. Then it's one for 594 when Stork Hendry gets out for 100. And then reasonably quickly the next day, I think it is, they, they get Ponsford, Bill Ponsford, for 352. So he's made a triple ton and a half in that time. They're three for 614. They get the next two quickly from Maley and think like, okay, we'll probably get through the rest of them from this point. So from five down, Victoria then add another 450 runs. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a good score on its own. And that's just Jack Ryder, who's an underappreciated part of Australian cricket history. He's one of the few Australians to average above 50 in Test cricket. You know, it's only about 10, I, I think, all up um, at the moment. And Jack Ryder's the earliest of those. So he makes 295, hit five sixes, which at the time you had to hit them basically out of the ground to get counted as a six. Um, he takes them past 1,000 runs. <laughs> 
runs. And then he gets out and the last wicket partnership adds another 60. So they're like, no, just keep batting. <laughs> just keep batting. Let's grind him into the dirt. Let's, I mean, that, that's, I, guess, I guess that was it. Before you had a lot of declarations, that that's just kind of how it was in, in timeless games. And you're right yeah. at 295, looking at the card here as well, 245 minutes. What a clip. So Ponsford made his 352 in 363 minutes. We didn't get balls faced uh, back in that era, but only six sixes for the entire innings and all of them are from Ryder. So... Um, <laughs> Ryder, of course, who was uh, still alive for the centenary test of 1977, he died a couple of weeks later. So he had a long and fulfilling life in the game, which, yeah, started all the way back in the 20s. And the thing that also jumps out at me is Arthur Maley, a wonderful leg spinner, four for 362 were his figures for the inning. Not a single maiden either. <laughs> 64 overs, no maidens. I mean, I guess they were eight ball overs, but still, I mean, only five maidens in the entirety of the Victorian innings, which stretched for 190.7 <laughs> overs. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> A worthy world record and one that will probably never be beaten. I wouldn't have thought now, given the way that first-class cricket's set up, Jeff, I mean, the only way it could be done really is if it was badly rain-affected in a four-day game and they're just batting on and trying to preserve their bowlers or, or something like that. That's probably the only way you could imagine that it could seriously be threatened. They need to bat for really... Two, I mean, could you do it batting for two full days, full tilt, 100 over days? I suppose you could um, if you went at five and over for two full days in, in say, the county championship or the Sheffield Shield if they were extended days. But uh, look, it, it's, it's probably a world record that'll never be broken. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that there'll ever be an opportunity to, to bat for that long, as you say. So that is the 11.07 from Geisy K. Thank you for the generous contribution. The next on our list is Andrew Wilson with $4.79. What does $4.79 suggest to you, Adam? Well, I had it in my head because we were watching the 2005 Inchbiston test recently and that's what Flintoff took in the second inning. So, of course, where he picks up Langer and Ponting in the same over, one of the most beautiful overs um, really ever, certainly in terms of what we've seen televised. Uh, um, he was just outstanding there, um, picking up Ponting at the end of the over. The seventh ball of it, actually. He bowled a, a front foot no ball. Um, I think what would have been the final delivery finally found his outside edge after roughing him up and picking up Langer at the start of the set. But that whole game from Flintoff, I mean, 68 from 72 balls on that first day, hitting five sixes, five of the ten struck that day. Then he takes three for 52 uh, in Australia's first innings. Then he backs it up with 73 in the second dig out of just 182. So he came in with England teetering that five for 72 and pushed him up to what was a fairly considerable chase for Australia to make in the fourth innings. And then he goes and takes those four wickets in the second dig. So um, across the game, you know, two half centuries, seven wickets, man of the match in... You you know, just looking back at the card yesterday, Jeff, it should have been a tie. I mean, Australia lose by a couple of runs and, we you know, that dramatic scene at the end with Kaspervitz, um, of course, and uh, Billy Bowden and, and, and Steve Harmison and the iconic Richie Benno commentary, which, which Mark Nicholas talked about on Calling the Shots. But um, I feel like now, with the benefit of hindsight, this isn't a parochial thing. Just, it, it, it was such a great test match that it deserved to be a tie. If, and, and we'll get another tie one day. When we've had draws with the score, we had a draw rather with the scores level in Zimbabwe in 996. But um, this is uh, you know, right there alongside um, those, those ties in 1960 and 1986 is, is the best test match ever played in terms of closeness. Yeah, and I suppose in the sequence of that series, if it was, you know, the tie followed by the draw, followed by the other team winning, you've had all four results in the first four. Yes. And, and then your your final match is the decider. So um, it, it 
well, you probably couldn't make 05 much better, but maybe maybe that would have done it. <laughs> so that is 4.79, Andrew Wilson. We're confident that that's the, what you're thinking of is the 4 for 79 from Andrew Flintoff. Uh, next on our list is a double header. Uh, thank you to Andrew for your number. Sean Barry and Damien McLean have come up next with $3.61. $3.61. And I had a little thought here and I had a look at the dates and realised that Damien joined up just before his namesake Damien Fleming's live show and so I don't think it's a coincidence that Damien Fleming's cap number for Australian test matches was 361 uh, so that's where I'm going for Damien McLean Yeah, Daniel Vittori took 361 test wickets so it could be a Kiwi connection Peter May was uh, the 361st English player who was the I guess the, the most brilliant of the England players in that famous 1950s side but 361 also uh, jumped out, Jeff, at me because last week the ECB popped on their on their YouTube channel and on their various social media platforms. The Lord's Test of 2013. And I've got to say, it's a test match I didn't watch. It was in um, the middle of, well, it was just leading into the, the 2013 election campaign and I wasn't in a position to be watching an awful lot of cricket. I think I watched um, a couple of hours when Australia collapsed on the second day when there were a slew of wickets. But I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll watch it. It's worthwhile. It's worth taking this in. Watch the 20-minute highlights package or whatever it was. Uh, and I noticed a sort of a number of things. First of all, um, it's the Shane Watson famous review, Jeff, which you end up at the mm-hmm. front of Lords at the at the Northgate there doing a video, which yeah. is probably still the thing you created, which has been seen or listened to by the most amount of people. <laughs> um, that, yeah, that was a, a day when. We had grown very fr- frustrated with Shane's reviewing and uh, my c- cameraman, Cam Fink, who we've had on the show before, was like, that's what we're talking about. You're, you're going to do it. Just just let it flow. So we did um, in, in the style of Hey Botham from the from Tony Martin and Mick Malloy. So we did Hey Watson and it worked out all right. There was the Chris Rogers non-review when he was hitting the pills from a, a Graham Swanful toss that would have missed the stumps by another set, as they say. Uh, Usman Khawaja giving out caught behind. I think that was the that decision sucks ass bullshit tweet from Cricket Australia's account, which was one of the two yeah. tweets that ended up leading towards them splitting their accounts. The other one was the racist tweet about Monty Panesar um, in the 2013-14 Ashes, but um, uh, that that wasn't a particularly good night for CA. I don't know how that happened. I don't think we ever quite got to the bottom of that, did we? I think I do know how it happened. Oh right, um, but but I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure of this, but I have a feeling that it may have involved Brad Haddon. I have a feeling it may have involved an unattended laptop and Brad Haddon. And and that's... That's quite that's, that's quite the revelation. I don't know, I'm not I'm not 100% sure if that's true, but I'm that I've just got a vague recollection from being on that tour at the time that that those were the pieces of the puzzle being put together. So make of that what you will. Uh, Steve Smith was bowling these huge leggies as well, picking up a bunch of wickets in in the first innings unexpectedly. Uh, but that was oh, that. three yeah, three at the close. He picked up yeah. three in the last couple of overs of the day. What a and and I met fake Steve Smith out the front of Lords and interviewed him. That's still on YouTube somewhere if you <laughs> search if you search me and Steve Smith Smith on YouTube, you might find him. And the last part of that, which stood out to me, was just how good Ryan Harris was. Yeah, he gets his name on the yeah. honours board, as they say at Lords, um, for his five-wicket bag, and I guess a sign of things to come later that year in the 13-14 Ashes when he and Mitchell Johnson ran amok. But yes, there's a number of options there, but 361 at Lords in 2013, or Damien Fleming, or Peter May, or Daniel Vittori, uh, Sean Barry and Damien McLean. Thank you ever so much for being part of it. Um, Jeff, next up, we have a great number. An absolutely brilliant number, and I'm going to enjoy this. 
270. It's courtesy of Christopher Weinberg and Matt Gaynor. I'm going to pick up Matt Gaynor initially, a uh, friend of mine. His clue was that it related to the greatest year, so I'm assuming it we're back in 2005 territory, and Matt's a, an Essex Ultra, so I'm thinking that it might be the 270 runs that Alistair Cook and Ravi Bapara put on at Chelmsford against the Australians, a, a game we talked about on Nerd Pledge a couple of weeks ago when Alistair Cook made a double ton against the tourist and put himself up in lights for international consideration for the first time and Ravi up the other end made about 130 odds so I'm going to tip that's Matt's number but we have so many other bits and pieces to note here Jeff and we're going to do it all well, I couldn't help noticing that, and, and I'm sure this isn't it, because both of these pledges came in a while ago, not when you were talking about this particular person, but 270 is the England test cap number of Charles Marriott, who is the leg spinner that Adam's been talking about for about three weeks, who played one test for England and took 11 for, which was an answer that we had to a clue that wasn't even right at the time because it was about Alan Border from our friend Ilya. But good grief, like the amount of mileage you've got out of Charles Marriott on the show for a bloke who was a school teacher with a weird frog in the blender action and played one test is incredible. Needs to have a book written about him. I might be the the, the right person to do that. Well, as it happens, George Headley was one of the 11 wickets that Marriott took in 1933, and George Headley um, has one of the two famous 270. So he made an unbeaten 270 at Sabina Park against England a couple of years later in, in 1935. Interestingly, uh, Headley made two double centuries in Test cricket. Both were at Sabina Park and both were against the touring English. The first of those was in 1930, so the first ever Test match in Jamaica. Uh, that was Wilfred Rhodes' final test as well, I should add. We mentioned that a few weeks ago, Rhodes' career, which spanned 31 years, can you believe? He debuted in 1899 and finished up mm. in, in 1930. But yes, uh, Headley made 270 not out uh, against the English in, in 1935. So that's one option. And the other one is none other than Don Bradman, Jeff, with an innings that um, Wisden, at, at the turn of this century, so their 2001 edition, uh, they identified as the greatest innings of the 20th century. Yeah, this is one that we come back to time and again where there's an absolute mud pit of a pitch and England and Australia are both trying to get best use of it bowling and trying to give it some sort of time to dry out. So both teams declare at nine down in their first innings. England declare at nine for 76 because they wanted to get Australia batting on it again before the end of the day. Um, there were some of the English players were trying to get the captain Gubby Allen to declare even earlier than that. So they got Australia back in and that's when Bradman said we're going to reverse the batting order because this is the most dangerous time. Let's get the tail enders out there and if anybody gets out it'll be them but hopefully they can soak up some overs while they're doing it. So it's 5 for 97 in the second innings after Bill O'Reilly and Chuck Fleetwood Smith opened the batting which is amazing. Two, two specialist wrist spinners opening the batting. Uh, they both make ducks but they at least they're out there for a little while and it's 5 for 97 when Bradman comes in batting at number 7 and that's why he has one of those innings at number 7 when you look up where he made his runs he's always got this 270 made at number 7 in the order because and, and what an innings it is in those conditions to come in and, and flip the match around. Yeah it was all about the rest day wasn't it so that was late Saturday uh, that they were trying to get Australia to bat again while it was still rough. It was described as the worst pitch uh, that they'd ever seen. Um, it, it had rained in the morning, on the morning of day two after raining in the lead up to the game which started on the Friday when Australia completed their first innings. But um, 
Yeah, so Bradman, a couple of things happened between the innings. So Bradman um, picked up on the idea that England might declare, or rather they might bowl them out. That was the bigger fear. So he was setting all his fielders on the boundary. Even though England were like eight for 60, he was like putting all his fielders out, none of them in catching positions in order to not bowl them out. He wanted to drag England's innings into the next day or as far to the finish line as possible, knowing the weather was meant to be good on the rest day, the Sunday, so that by Monday the pitch would be good. In the end, Gubby Allen picked up on this, thus why he declared. But then Bradman um, in the in-between innings. So England go off the field, but they never formally said they were declaring, or so Bradman said. So it took them an extra five minutes before Bradman went into the dressing room and said, hang on, why are you off the field? Have you declared? Clarifying it with the umpires, because obviously it's quite unusual declaring when the score is 76. And that managed to kill five more minutes of clock. So they only, I think they only got to bowl <laughs> three overs to them uh, before the close that night, which was enough to pick up Bill O'Reilly and Chuck Fleetwood Smith, who both made ducks, but as you say, you press fast forward to when Bradman comes in at five for seventy odd on the on the Monday in much better conditions. He has Jack Fingleton for company, who goes on to make one hundred and thirty odd, uh, and and Bradman, of course, uh, two hundred and seventy, which yeah has been described as the the greatest innings of all time by Wisden back when they put out that centenary edition in two thousand and one. But it's also relevant, Adam, because where it comes in the series, this is the third test and Australia are 2-0 down. So they turn the series around at that point. They go on to win the next two. It's the only time in the history of test cricket in a five-match series that a team's come back after losing the first two to win. And it's based on that innings and it's based on reversing the batting order. It's a fucking outrageous and it's probably it's the best thing in Bradman's career yeah it's, it's absolutely brilliant it's his longest test innings it's 7 hours and 38 minutes as you said before the highest ever score made by a number 7 it was also the biggest crowd at a test match 350,000 people rolled up to the MCG for that test and you know Australia had been routed in the first they didn't just lose the first two test matches Bradman was out for two ducks in the first two tests I think they were bowled out in double digits uh, in both of those two so they came to Melbourne with a considerable amount of pressure on their shoulders I mean all of Bradman's heroics in 1930 and 1934 in England were I mean he was under a lot of pressure as skipper I mean they, they could have easily uh, gone 3-0 down conceded the ashes and he look, he might have been sacked as skipper he probably would have been uh, so Yes, a, a memorable test match there and also ticks the box for 270. So, Christopher <laughs> Weinberg, we'll, we'll give you um, the, the, the 270s by either Headley or Bradman, um, given their connections, two of the greats of the era. And Matt Gaynor will give you Ali Cook and Ravi Bapara's partnership in the greatest year that was, as you say, 2005. As we move on to 393, Jeff, which is our final number for today. It is from Red Kez, Kerry O'Brien. Uh, probably <laughs> not that Kerry O'Brien. We've had communication with this Kerry before. Uh, 393. I Look, I dug around. I, I wasn't finding anything hugely compelling on this, except that it is the test cap number of Mike Hussey, who we've had the good fortune of working with on radio before, um, who's one of nature's gentlemen, he, Michael Hussey. He is indeed. Australia have won 393 test matches. I thought that might be of interest. Now, that is out of 830 they've played in total, so a winning percentage of 47.3. That's comfortably the best winning percentage of, of test-playing nations when you when you pass 10 test matches. So Afghanistan are currently at 50, of course, because they've, they've won two and lost two. But for those that have played a, 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 a serious number of tests in their reign, um, South Africa are the next, uh, the next highest on 37.6 in terms of winning percentage. So um, that's a... That's a a meaningful number, I think, that Australia have won 393 of their 830 test matches, Kerry O'Brien. 
I like it because it doesn't fit into any of the the categories. When you get a number, you start turning it around and thinking, does that look like a... Well, it's obviously not an individual score. Does it look like a team score? I don't think 393 was a team score that stood out. Is it? Is it bowling figures? You, you're going through your, your more common suspects. Mm. So something like the number of test wins by Australia, I'm into it. And for that reason, that's enough reason alone to say, Kerry, that's what we're going with for the 393. Uh, thank you to everybody who has sent one through. We'll revisit a couple that we got wrong last week. Two people were going for Steve Smith numbers last week when... We were going for more boutique options. Byron Cooper Fogarty's 239 was not DK Lilly's bowling average of 23.9, but it was Steve Smith's test score of 239 in Perth, was it, 2017? Yes, indeed it was at Perth in 2017, 2018. It's England, he made 239 in that. Was it a 390-odd run partnership with Mitchell Marsh or something like that? Uh, I think they, they nearly went on to break a big record and didn't, quite get there I remember that but yes Smith 239 was in that innings and the other was the 211 from Simon McInerney which was the score that Steve Smith made against England at Old Trafford so Steve Smith <laughs> Ashes double tons were very popular here uh, unlike all of the 211 suggestions that we put forward last week uh, as for Patrick Rogers his 211 was not George McCauley the 1920s England player but the first double hundred in test matches by Billy Murdoch which you mentioned separately Separately in last week's section, Adam, but I it did. wasn't the answer we had for Patrick's number. That is beautiful. As is the story that Jess Curry sent us through. So we had for her 336 Wally Hammond's world record at the time in 1936. But she tells us that it's not that. Indeed, it's Andy Bickle's test bowling economy rate. She goes on. <laughs> Fun fact. I named an egg I looked after in year seven biology, a la Egbert in Degrassi, Andy Sadly, perennially relegated to the 12th egg in the dozen behind Breg Lee. <laughs> oh, Jess. Didn't we all love Andy Pickle with his smiling face and his devil-may-care attitude and his outrageous outswing and his uh, ability to club them with the bat? So 336 for Jess was Andy Bickle. And for Dane Hanstead, he said it was not actually the bowling figures of Shane Watson the 33 for 6 or the 6 for 33 that we were speculating about. But he gave a hint, which was 202. 202, of course, is the one-day international cap number of James Faulkner, who took 3 for 36 to be player of the match in the World Cup final of 2015. So that's where the two 336s have ended up for Jess and Dane from last week's segment. If you'd like to send us a nerd pledge, Go to patron.com slash the final word. You spell patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, slash the final word. And then you can sign up, you can set a number, you can send it through to us, you can help keep the show going, and you can have us speculate on the cricketing history of where your number might take us in an increasingly long segment <laughs> every week of this show. Yeah, it's been, it's been fun, hasn't it, uh, through lockdown when we've had less set-piece stuff that we can... That we can have a, a bit more of a dance on this. And, uh, yeah, I think we're not only expanding our own minds, but hopefully uh, uh, we're able to cover more topics uh, in the history of the game, the rich history of the game. So thank you, Byron, Patrick, Jess and Dane. for, And, and I think 
Simon as well, sorry, for getting back to us where we've been wrong because we like that. We like being told where we haven't got it right so we can have another bite of the cherry. Now, that ends Nerd Pledge, Jeff. Uh, Patreon.com <laughs> forward slash the final word. As you say, um, Jeff, uh, uh, we're, we're coming to the end of the show. Our thank yous, as always, to begin with. Bad Producer Productions, Dave Collins, Jay Mueller, Astrid Edwards, BadProducerProductions.com, uh, where all of their fantastic shows live. We can strongly in, in, encourage you to go to their website because they're putting in a lot of hard work through lockdown and isolation period uh, that's been going on over the last few months. And they've been producing some fantastic content along the way. If you'd like to listen to Adam's other new podcast, Calling the Shots, that is coming out uh, this weekend, Friday-ish or Saturday, depending what time zone you're in. If you'd like to go to The Pinch Hitter, you can Google that or you can go to nightwatchman.net and find the Pinch Hitter cricket publication and uh, throw a few quid their way as well. They're trying to keep interesting things going through lockdown and a lot of people have been in touch with us to say how nice it is to have these strange little online communities sprouting up and, and growing. So that's always the main thing we're grateful for every week is all the people on Patreon who help keep the show alive and all the people who are just listening out there who who make us feel like this is worth worthwhile because we we put a show up and we watch the numbers go and we we see that people are, are listening to it and loving it and we're loving making it so uh it's just one big love in here at the final word yeah well said that includes people who jump on itunes and rate us and review us and so on it's really great getting those through because we know that helps a lot in terms of getting the show to more people and that virtuous cycle continues so thanks to those that have jumped on and done that in the last couple of weeks uh, thanks to Chris Barrett as I said before it's been a busy week for him uh, and to come on and give us half an hour of his time to pace through the the uh, the life and times of Kevin Roberts was worthwhile and, and timely as it happens we were going to talk to Chris Barrett anyway it just happened to be that uh, he broke uh, one of the stories of the year if you like um, uh, in, in the build up to it so that was a, a happy coincidence and thank you to you Jeff you're sitting in Sydney at the moment still ploughing through writing your book I know it's Hard yards for you right now, um, ploughing through chapter after chapter, day after day. So hopefully this has been some some nice respite for you, being able to talk about the world around us for a couple of hours. <laughs> there, there, it's a, a bigger world out there. You know, greater things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. But this is this is what we do, our small corner of it. This is the final word. It's been nice to be with you. I had to go about it, write it up.